It is good to be back. And a little more about myself. I should let you know that I don't like to pay to get my car washed. Maybe it's the way I was raised, but I don't like watching someone do something I know I could do myself while I do nothing but watch him. Uh, I also don't like to wash my own car. I don't like that. You should also know I don't like driving a dirty car. So you see where that leaves me. You know where that leaves me? That leaves me in that little wannabe drive through spray your car down pseudo car wash that's attached to the, to the gas station. That's where it leaves me about once a month. Uh, I, I do that deal, get my gas, pay the you know, extra seven bucks or whatever it is to have that kind of car wash where you go through. And you, the one by my house has the screen with the lady that comes on and she starts to talk about all the things you're supposed to do before you drive into the car wash, which, of course, there's a little button in the corner that says skip. And I hit that every time. Not interested in having directions on how to drive through the portal to see my car sprayed down. So skip, skip, skip. I, I, I've done this dozens of times. Well, last time I went to go get my car washed in the pseudo drive through spray your car down wannabe car wash, uh, I hit the skip, put in the code that I got from my receipt, drove into the car wash. It honks at you when you get to the right place. Does yours do that? And, and then all of a sudden, I'm just going to relax while my car gets sudsed up. And all of a sudden, I get hit uh, in the back of my head with a water cannon. I forgot to roll my rear windows up. And they sprayed just perfectly right into the back of my neck and got the entire interior of my car soaking wet. Now, it's moments like that you want to blame someone really badly, and there's no one there uh, but you, and you know it's no one's fault but your own. And had I taken the time to listen to the directions, I would have the very obvious direction to make sure, and I checked this the next time I went, make sure that you have all your windows rolled up, which I, I didn't check. Now, I did something stupid, and I got knocked in the back of the head because I didn't follow the directions. And I guess that's what I should expect, right? should expect that. But what do we do with that situation where you do read the directions, you follow them all very specifically, and you still get knocked in the back of the head? What's with that? Now, when it comes to the God of the gospel, uh, it kind of feels like that. It really does. As a matter of fact, if you just say, what kind of God of the gospel should there be? Because as your pastor said, gospel means good news. I can imagine a kind of God that would be the kind of God I would expect to be the God of the good news. But if you don't hit skip and you really look through all the directions in the Bible about the God of the gospel, uh, it's like you're getting kicked in the back of the head because the picture that is painted for you, it doesn't feel all that good. It really doesn't. Matter of fact, the God of the good news has to be understood biblically. And when you think of the God of the gospel biblically, you sit there and say, not the kind of God I would expect, nor the kind of God that I would want. Down where I'm from, I call it Orange County parents. But what we would prefer is a kind of, uh, you know, easygoing, permissive, indulgent, more grandfatherly, less father, certainly not a disciplinarian. I wouldn't want that kind of God. I want the kind of God that most kids want. And that's a God, you know, a, a dad that's pretty easygoing. He's the, you know, the doting daddy. He's not, uh, he's not the strict disciplinarian. 
And yet when you read the Bible about the God of the gospel, it puts us in a very difficult place of saying, that God, not the God I would expect. Here's the problem with studying the gospel. If you open up your New Testament, you start reading about the gospel, or even the book of Acts, and you start looking at when the gospel is preached, you immediately see the preachers, these Jewish men, preaching about the gospel without any real discussion about the God of the gospel. That is until you get to Acts chapter 17. Because in Acts chapter 17, what you're going to find there is a culture in Athens, Greece, that's a lot more like America than it is the first century Jewish synagogue where the gospel was normally preached in the gospels. And even in the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, or Stephen preaching to the Jewish leaders, or pick anything before Acts 17, and we can start talking about the good news of the gospel. But when Paul gets to Athens, he says, you really don't know the God of the gospel. The God of the gospel is a God you need to understand And he's not the God you think he is. If you just hit skip on the biblical directions about the God of the gospel, you'll imagine a God that's no God at all. Grab your Bibles and look at what Paul has to say to the Athenians, which I would argue is a lot more like 21st century America than the kind of context that the gospel in the Bible is normally delivered in. Are you following me on this? In other words... If Paul had to stop and say, I don't think you understand God, so I cannot give you the gospel until you understand God, I think we've got to do that in our evangelism. We have to do that in our own thinking. Because if we imagine God to be the way we would like him to be, as the Athenians did, then we're going to have the gospel all wrong. You have to start with the God of the gospel. And that God, if you paint a biblical picture of that God, it's not as tender and loving and kind and permissive and doting and indulgent as I would want God to be. Matter of fact, it puts me in a pretty precarious situation. Drop all the way down till you see that funny word Areopagus. In in Acts 17, verse 22, Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus. This was the kind of the professorial university faculty kind of group that met. You might remember the term Mars Hill. At this particular point in biblical history, they weren't actually meeting on Mars Hill, but it was where they used to meet. And here, the meeting of the professors in Athens, the intellectual elite, he's going to speak to them. Paul's dragged in front of them, and he says, men of Athens, I perceive, look at middle of verse 22, that in every way you are very religious, as by the way, most people are, even in secular America, right? Most people still believe in God with all the big, you know, fancy books on atheism these days, and the new atheists, ask the average person you run into, they believe in God. Very religious. Everybody has a perception of God. And he says, you guys are that way too. And as I passed along, verse 23, and I observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, quote, to the unknown God, unquote. At all these gods in Athens in the first century... Not sure if they had perhaps missed one of the many gods in the pantheon of gods that they imagined. They put one up that was kind of the generic blue wrap, you know, normal, this is just the god in case we we skipped one. And he says, well, I saw one there that was undefined. That's really the god that you need to know about because the gods that you're trying to think about that exist, they don't exist. Your view of God is wrong. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, the very first thing that God taught the Jewish people in the Old Testament is now what Paul has to teach the Athenians 
as he says, you need to know the God of the gospel, and it starts with this. The God, verse 24, underline it, highlight it, bracket it, make sure it jumps off the page next time you read it. The God who made the world and everything in it. I say that because in Genesis 1-1, when God said, here, Moses, deliver the word to the people. He starts with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is creator. If you're taking some kind of notes tonight or you just want to remember this simply, we need to start with this. You cannot know the God of the gospel unless you come to grips with the fact that God is the creator. God is your maker. God made everything. Remember when you were a kid on the playground and you'd have that little tussle with the kid on the playground about who makes the rules for whatever the game was you're playing. And at some point you'll hear it in your memory and you'll still hear it on playgrounds today. You'll hear the kid say, you're not the boss of me, right? You're not the boss of me. You're not the boss of me. That's the way we like it when it comes to life. We don't want anybody being the boss of me. Here's the thing about being creator. If you are the creator, then you are the boss. That's how it works. Remember in Jeremiah, Paul picks up on this later in Romans as he talks about the position of God. He says, you know, it's like this. God is the potter and you people are the pots. God creates and you are the pots and that gives the potter the rights over the pots. Speaking of my childhood, I lived down the street from a place called Woolworths. Makes me sound really old. Anyone remember Woolworths? Woolworths, I used to go down there, and I lived in a blue-collar family, didn't have a lot of money, and so all of my allowance, it wasn't like today where it's just kind of for breathing this week, you get paid 10 bucks or whatever. Back in the day, we had to work for our money, and so I worked, 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 worked every week to get my allowance, and I got my allowance, and one of the things, I, I went through this stage of buying model airplanes, remember that? Now I'm sure they don't sell that glue I'm sure I was getting high, you know, without knowing it, putting my models together. I remember I love the uh, P-51 Mustang, the, the, the old planes, and I would build these planes. And I got pretty good at building them so they looked really neat. And I would put the, the decals on the side and on the wings and everything. And I would buy these with my own money. I would spend my Saturday afternoons putting them together. I would paint them, and I would have the little paint out there, which was probably also toxic and killing all kinds of brain cells. But I would put these things together looking beautiful, just how I wanted them. I'd put them up on my shelf, and then every now and then I'd look at the shelf, and I'd pick one off the shelf, and I'd go in the backyard. After I'd dig through the bottom drawer of my little dresser there where I'd find all the uh, you know, M80s and all the, the you know, firecrackers and fireworks, uh, great childhood I had. And I would pull those out and I would try to bore a little hole sometimes in them. And I would put a, like a, an M80 inside one of my P51 uh, Mustangs. And I would go up, I'd climb up on the roof. Where's my mom in all this? I have no idea. But I would climb up on the roof and I would light the fuse and I would throw that Mustang off and I would let it blow up in midair. It was awesome. <laughs> now, if my mom noticed, and usually she did when the fireworks started going off, she said, Michael, what are you doing? What are you doing? I said, well, I'm blowing up one of my airplanes. Oh, you shouldn't do that. Why are you blowing up the airplane? I wanted to. Now, I didn't say this, but I'm thinking, Mom, it's not your airplane. I spent 20 hours putting the airplane together, painting the airplane. I can blow the airplane up if I want to. Twisted little blue-collar Long Beach boy. But that's exactly what Jeremiah says to the people of Israel. God is the potter. 
He can make from the clay whatever he wants and do whatever he wants with it because God made you. Matter of fact, he gets real personal in this text. Do you have it open there? God who made the world and everything in it, he is in charge, the Lord of heaven and earth. He didn't live in temples made with hands. He's not served by human hands as though if he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything else. He gives it all, and therefore he's got the right to do it. He can do whatever he wants. Moved into my house, and it's by a little ravine and i realized after i bought it these are the things you don't find out until you move in uh that there's rats that live in the ravine and they come up and they they infest which i thought it was a great thing to buy this house because it had this great green hedge along the side well i realized around sunset if you're sitting out there in my backyard you'll hear (laughs) through the hedge and the rats run up and down now i bought the house cost way too much money but I paid for it. I mean, it's not paid off yet. The bank owns most of it. But I, I own the title to, to, the, to the house. So I guess in a sense, when the rats invade my, my hedge, they, I mean, I can do what I want. Matter of fact, I have done a lot to deal with the rats. I buy rat poison. I'm sorry if you're a rat lover. And I realize there are rat lovers out there. There are people now that buy rats and then they take them into their home they clean them up. They give them shots. They give them names like Rita and Ralph, Rita and Ralph the rat, and they play with them. Now, let's just say out there in the hedge, I decided to take some of those rats and, and I chose one or two of them and I got them all their shots and I got them all cleaned up, bought the little, uh, you know, rat shampoo or whatever, rat, rat conditioner, put a bow on them, brought them in. And I brought them to my daughter and said, here's Rita the rat, your new pet. And my daughter, oh, it's so great. And she's one of those, let's just imagine, Orange County Kids loves the rats. And so she's got rat, she got a rat that I got from the hedge, cleaned it up, chose it, gave it to my daughter. And now as she sits there reading a book, she lets little Rita the rat run around. While I'm out in the yard killing all of Rita's relatives, right, with rat traps and rat poison. And if my neighbor comes over, what are you doing? How can you do that? I can do whatever I want with the rats that live in my hedge. Can I not? Right? This is my house. This is my hedge. Now, that didn't even start to get to the place where God is, where God says, I make them, I sustain them, I give them life. I am the boss of them. I'm in charge. I'm the creator, the creator of all people. I give them life and breath and everything. And I even determine, look what it says in verse 26. I make from one person every nation to live on the face of the earth. I determine the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places. I even put them in place where I want them to be. Now you start talking to your neighbors and friends about the God of the gospel as being a God who is the creator and therefore has rights over every single aspect of every person's life. He is the boss of them all and he doesn't have to answer to any human being for doing anything with them. If he wants to save one or not save one, if he wants to be kind to one or not be kind to one, it's exactly what God was trying to say in Jeremiah 18 when he says, I can take one pot and use it for this. I can take another vessel and use it for that. I can smash one. I can put one up on a, on a, on a shelf. I can honor one. I can debase one. I'm the, I'm the potter. You're the clay. Now, Paul had to stop and tell the Athenians this about God because they had a God of their own imagination, a set of gods. They didn't have the God of the gospel. The God of the gospel starts in Genesis 1.1. God created the heavens and the earth. We just got to deal with that. 
the God who creates all things. That's hard. I understand. I mean, there are positive aspects to it, I suppose. But it's a good place for us to recognize that we are not creating God in our image. God is a God who's given us life, breath, and everything else. He has the right over the clay, as Jeremiah 18 and Romans chapter 9 say. Look at verse 27. Why does he put them in their allotted places and the boundaries for their dwelling places? Here's a word, verse 27, that they, what's the third word? If you've got an ESV, should. They should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, he says to these Athenians. For indeed, we are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not think that that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. No, the times of ignorance God has overlooked. But now he, here's another big word, commands all people everywhere to repent. There's a lot of should and commanding and divine being and we're his offspring and he's the, 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 the prototype and we are representatives. And I mean, interesting kind of similarities and distinctions. Boss and people who are subject to him. He's telling us now what we must do. He's even willing to call us ignorant prior to this time, not knowing what we should know, certainly implicating the Athenians for not knowing what God is and they should know and they should repent. What's with all that? Let's put it this way, and I'll try to tie this together to what we've just read. If you're taking notes, God is holy. He's holy. He's the creator and he's holy. Holy, if we understand this word, is to be set apart, to be different, to be other, And yet we're not like trees and rocks and animals. We are like him. We are his offspring in that we bear his image. But he's got the right to say should. And he's got the right to command. And he's now called, even in that one phrase in verse 29, the divine being. And while you create these images in your temples with gold and silver, he's much different than that, much bigger than that. He's much greater than that. And you've been ignorant as to who he is, and you need to repent. Holiness of God, the implications of that throughout the Bible. If you think about the Bible, starting with the God of the gospel saying he's in charge, he's the creator. That's what the first book is all about, the Genesis. God is the Genesis of all things. And then we get into Exodus, and we learn about his holiness. In Leviticus, all the things that are supposed to represent his holiness. He's different. He's in charge. He makes the rules. He holds us accountable to those rules. He's holy. First Peter chapter 1 says, Because God is holy, and this is a quotation from Leviticus 19 and elsewhere throughout the Old Testament, because he is holy, he expects us to be holy. He's the divine being, and we are his offspring. We should be like dad. We need to learn how different he is, and we need to be different like he is. To be set apart, to be different, takes on an ethical component when we understand that he does things differently than we do. He tells the truth. He is about beauty and about justice and about faithfulness and fidelity and goodness. And we ought to be different from everything in this creation. And we should be like that. We should not do our own thing. We ought to be like dad. And dad is the standard. He's holy. 
be holy as I'm holy. The call of the Athenians who are doing their best to think through who God is, to say you need to repent and you need to understand that God is not going to allow you to be ignorant anymore. You need to conform to him is a picture of a kind of holiness that people today can't quite grasp. And that is that we're not going to cut it. God is not going to allow us to be who we are without the connection to recognizing that he becomes the standard. That's too confusing. Let me put it this way. My wife wanted me to paint the bathroom. And she said, Mike, I'd like you to paint the bathroom. It's long overdue. Would you do that on one of your days off? And so the honeydew list involved painting the bathroom. And I'm like you. I not only don't like to wash my car, I certainly don't like to paint. But I love my wife. Bathroom needs painting. So I go out and say, great, I'm going to buy some paint. I'm at the store. What do you want to paint the bathroom? What color? And she says, white. And I say, great, click, hang up. I go to the man. I say, I need some white paint. And he says, what kind of white paint would you like? Well, I said, well, semi-gloss. No, no, no. What kind of white paint do you want? Well, I realize at the paint store that there's like 32 brands of, of, of white. And I, I mean varieties of white. Starting with, I don't know, what, what, one of them I remember was Navajo white. Some of you know it's a lot better than I do. All the way through, you know, something white and cream white and super white and angelic white and throne room of God white. I don't know what they were all called, but there was this big spectrum of white. Now, when I saw the first little chip there on the paint board and it said white, I picked it up and thought, well, that looks pretty white. And he kept taking me down this aisle and saying, well, it gets to the place where this is super, super white, white. I don't know what it was called. Brilliant white or something. And when I took the thing that I picked up as white when it was next to the, I don't know, tan, and I thought it was white, and now he showed me the brilliant white, I recognized the thing I thought was white wasn't white at all. It looked terribly dirty. Now, it took me a long time to figure out what kind of white my wife wanted, which wasn't angelic throne room white, but I recognized that when you compare something with something dark, it looks white until you get a standard that's far different than that, and I realized that that's not white at all. My friends and your friends think that God is a God who's going to expect us to do our best. The God of the gospel spends all this time in the Old Testament representing himself as so perfect that we can do nothing but recognize we are dirty by comparison. Do you remember in Isaiah chapter 6, we have this image of Isaiah standing before God in the throne room of God. We sang about it just a few minutes ago. The glory of God in the earth, the reflection of God's glory coming from the train of his robe. Well, he'd spent five chapters describing the problems of sin in Israel, and he's showing how dirty Israel is. And I can only imagine that he feels pretty white compared to the dark sins of the people of Israel. Until, of course, he stands before God in Isaiah chapter 6. And in that moment, when he sees God and the seraphim flying around saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You remember what he says, right? This is great that I'm here. Awesome. High five me for being so holy. No. What does Isaiah say? Woe to me. I am ruined. Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips. See, when you put the white of the holiness of God in perspective anywhere in the Old Testament, or when you get it here thrown before the Athenians, you need to realize that you don't live up to the holiness of God. He is the divine being. We do not reflect his holiness clearly enough or well enough. We need to repent of our sin. 
that's a kind of realization that even the best prophets of the Old Testament came face to face with when they had their view of God exalted to a place of perfect holiness. We need to rethink God's perfection. God is a holy God. And because he's holy, you still have Acts 17 open. Look at verse 31. And because we realize we fall short of that holiness, he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Judge the world. Third thing we need to recognize about the God of the gospel is that God is a just judge. And the just judge of the Bible will always judge justly. And he has set a day when everyone will be judged. If you just think of that right there, God is creator. He's the boss of us. We're not the boss of ourselves. We're certainly not the boss of him. He's holy and perfect, and none of us live up to that standard. And he's just, and one day will judge all people. If we really understand the God of the gospel and go back in the Old Testament and see how he reveals himself, we realize that justice is unbending. You remember when Moses was supposed to speak to the rock and he struck the rock? What did God do to Moses in response to that violation of his simple directive? Here's, here's someone after 120 years on, on this planet. I mean, 40 years. Think about that. Leading the people through the wilderness. God says, get up on this mountain and look over there. You see the promised land? You're not going there. If there's anyone that should get off the hook because he's a friend of God, it would be Moses. He didn't speak to the prophets the way he spoke to Moses. He spoke to Moses face to face like a friend. That's how he's described. And yet he blew it with one simple command. And God says, you're not going in. You're not going in. What is that all about? I mean, you can look at Nadab and Abihu. Set up instructions for worship. You didn't keep them, you're dying. I'm glad that God took a rest between the Testaments and he got all that out of his system. He's much nicer in the New Testament. Until you read Acts 5. And Ananias and Sapphira, they do a little bit of deception. It's not all out, complete lying or anything terrible. And what does God do to Ananias and Sapphira? He says, I'm going to judge sin. The good news, you know where we're coming for the next the rest of summer. But a nice had I been assigned a nice topic like that. But I was assigned the God of the gospel. And the God of the gospel is this. He's the boss. He sets the rules. His rules are perfect. And everyone who breaks those rules is going to be judged. Now, I know your friends and neighbors don't believe that. And a lot of us intuitively, like the Athenians, want to say, that's not how I imagine God. God grades grades on a curve. Why? Because he's loving, Mike. That's where you need to get. That's the gospel. I understand that. But do you recognize that if you call God a righteous judge, a just judge, there is nothing else he can do but judge perfectly and precisely and justly. Let's say I move up here and I say, you know what? Went to law school before I went to seminary. I didn't, but let's just say I did. And I'm going to, I'm going to run for the uh, Fresno County judge. I'm going to be a judge. So you're going to vote for me. Okay. And I got a, I got a campaign slogan. Here's my campaign slogan. Okay. Vote for me. All go free. Mike Fabara's loving judge. That's going to be my slogan. And I want you to vote for me. Right? Vote for me, 2016, all go free. Why? Because I'm a loving judge. That's going to be my campaign slogan. How do you think I'll do? Well, not so well. Why? Because even earthly judges, though we want their judgment tempered with mercy, we expect them not to say everyone's going to go free. 
But ask the average man on the street about the justice of God. If God is loving, he understands. He's more of a grandfather than a disciplinarian. He's not dad who's strict with the rules and won't let us break those rules. He's going to let us go. We love justice inherently because we are made in his image. And I know we don't think we love justice, but you do love justice. That's why you go and you pay money to watch a movie where the bad guy gets beaten and shot and strung up, right? Or whatever you, you know, whatever your version of this justice shoot 'em up movie is. We inherently, we want that. The bad guys should lose and the good guys should win. The problem with our assessment of ourselves is we always want to think we're the good guys. Till we read about the holiness of God. God is creator. He's the boss of us. He's in charge. He can do whatever he wants with mankind and this planet. He is a holy God, perfectly holy. He has a set of standards and he expects us to keep them. And if we don't, he calls us to repent. And when we break those rules, he's a just judge who's set a day in which he'll judge the world. And it says in the middle of verse 31, we stopped after the word righteousness. He's going to judge the world in righteousness. And that means he, it's unbending and it's unyielding, but he'll do it by a man who he has appointed, verse 31. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Christ becomes the judge. And the reason he becomes the judge, at least one of the reasons, is in part because he solved the problem of the unyielding justice of God by redeeming a group of people that will not incur that because he's already incurred it for them. The gospel is really contingent on that. And I'm sure that much of what Paul went on to say about the good news of the gospel is an elaboration of that fourth thing that we should note about God, which I'll leave to the rest of your series this summer, and that is that God is loving. God is creator, God is holy, God is just, and God is loving. And he's loving, which means that he must somehow, in his love, if he chooses to, not obligated to, come up with a way to maintain his position as the one in charge, to maintain his purity as the holy God of the universe that cannot change his standards, and he must somehow satisfy his own justice, but because he loves, he will provide a way out. See, that's the good news. And until you know the character of God, which is what the whole Old Testament is trying to affirm to us, is the character of God, we're not even ready for the good news. Then it becomes simply grandpa's just passing out snicker bars for us. And that's what we think salvation is. It's self-improvement. It's making your life a little bit more fun or a little better, or a little bit more fulfilling. When in reality, it is if he's creator, if he's holy, if he's just, we're in a heap of trouble. We better hope he's got a way out for us. And he does. It's called the good news of the gospel. And it's bound up in this man that will judge. But he'll also have behind him in line his brethren who he's redeemed. And I wish I could spend the rest of the summer talking to you about that, because that's the real good news. But I got stuck at the beginning of this series preaching about the God of the gospel. The God of the gospel imperils us. The God of the gospel also provides for us. That's the good news of the gospel. It's the great good news of the gospel that a holy, perfect, in-charge God can provide a way out. When I was a kid at elementary school, every summer, for the summer, at the end of the school year, we'd have a carnival. 
And I remember you get all these tickets, and I don't remember how many they passed out if you had to buy them or what. But I love going over to the corner where this clown, which I didn't care much for clowns, but he was dressed up like a clown. You could pay two tickets and get on a bike. It was called the Crazy Bikes. And the Crazy Bikes had this weird, like, long forks on the front, banana seat. And it had these spokes that were all different lengths. And the hub of the wheel was off-center. And it would do this, you know. And you'd pay two tickets to ride this bike that was horrible and almost impossible to ride. But I enjoyed doing it every summer in elementary school, the, riding the crazy bikes. Now, of course, when I was done with that and I rode my bike to school every day at school, I would you know, be done with my crazy bike, which was just fun to ride around this little course with cones and stuff up, get on my real bike, and I would ride home. And, of course, I didn't want the hub of my wheels out of balance or out of place. I want the hub right in the center. The Old Testament is much about getting all of those spokes correct on the view of God. Because if we don't understand him as creator the way we ought to, if we don't understand him as holy as we ought to, or if he's not as just as he is in the Old Testament, if we don't get all that, somehow our view of God is skewed and the center is not the center. And you don't want a gospel or a theology that looks like that. We need God's truth to determine in our own thinking who God really is. And without that, everything else goes wrong. You can't get the gospel till you understand accurately the God of the gospel. He's creator, he's holy, he's just. But thank God he's also loving. Much more on that to come.